Good morning. It's good to be here uh, just at this time, just to um, continue on with this missions conference as we talk about like the, the, the desire we have and the passion that we have to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all our hearts and our lives. And it's a, it's a pretty big challenge, isn't it, when we actually think about that, like what is the task and what is the obligation and what are our responsibilities and why are we even here on a Sunday morning and what, what is God doing in our hearts and how is God transforming us into his image and there's, there's pictures all throughout history in that, and I think, um, I think it's important to look at that at times, to go back at times, to look at what, what men and women have done throughout the centuries to get us to the place where we are here today, gathering together, worshiping him, and the freedom we have in America to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this love, and we thank you for the privilege we have to know you and the power of your resurrection. Father, we just thank you that you are a God that desires to use us, but you don't want to make us, compel us, Father, because of obligation that we feel this burden. We want to be obligated because of what you've done for us and the relationship that you have for us. So, Father, we actually praise you and we thank you for the love that you've given to us. I ask that you'd be with us this morning as we share. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So one of the things I want to do is, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll look at that, but we're going to go through a few other passages just up till that. And we're going to talk about some aspects of, like, how the Apostle Paul and how the church and how the believers began the ministry they began. And when we actually go back to this idea of like, what, what is the whole idea of a missions conference and what's the reason for missions? And, and you sort of have to even look, like look back and think, well, when did it happen for us? And so who actually came and, and actually ministered to us when we were once, you know, non-believers and how did we become believers in Christ? And uh, where did this whole issue of problems begin? And it didn't begin with our election system and our political system. It goes way, way back to Genesis chapter 3. We actually see this, this issue taking place in the world where sin is actually this, this issue that separates us from a relationship with a loving God that desired to have a relationship with us. And because of that breaking of sin, because of that uh, the breaking of fellowship with the sin, there's a separation that begins to happen now between man and God. And that, that yearning, that desire to actually have something and have a relationship with God is what drives us to doing all kinds of things that actually aren't even a godly thing we do. And we desire things, we lust after things, we crave things. And it's all this desire that continues on. And mankind is desperate in a horrible condition. And then there's a promise made in that book, actually, that, that God will one day send a Savior that will actually redeem us. And it begins to be talked out throughout the whole Old Testament. We see this picture that's taking place that there's actually a plan in all of this. And then we begin to walk all the way through until we see aspects of that taking place, all the way through the Old Testament until we see it fulfilled through the life of Jesus Christ. And this plan and this, this repetition continues all the way through, and then Jesus actually begins to talk about this, this method that he's going to use, which is the church of Jesus Christ, which is a church here gathered here, but it's actually the entire church, the body of Christ, that will be used to actually be the way he will continue to reach this world. And that's the thing that gets kind of strange for us in so many ways. Is like, why use us? Why use people for this task of actually reaching the world? Why, why use the church? And it, and it actually is a very clear picture because we actually want to see how he does it. And so the earliest record we have of that, how God begins to do that, is actually found in Acts chapter 2, where we actually see how the disciples, when they gather together, when they're forming together, they're trying to figure out, so what are we supposed to do now that Jesus is gone? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to live and then an event takes place, and we'll talk about that for a second. We work with an organization called uh, Global Serve International. Um, John was just sharing a little bit. We, sh we work 
specifically among unreached, unengaged people groups. Um, some of the ones you listed on here are those that we would target as an organization. Those are the groups that are, are, are needy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's literally there's no access to it. So we work specifically targeting those areas of the world. And it is sometimes challenging. It's, it's complicated. Um, it is, it is, it's not as uh, dangerous as it might seem or spyish as it might seem. It's actually pretty le- legitimate straight up. We're entering into areas legitimately, working in these communities, but it is a lot of work, and it's challenging to do that, and it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes determination a lot of times. And one of the things we always ask, people always ask us, like, what's one trait you look for in a guy coming out? And, and obviously the first one is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where he's so in love with Jesus Christ. But then the next thing I look for is somebody that's actually tenacious, um, a guy with a, 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 just an attitude that just doesn't quit, kind of this this eager anticipation of actually knowing that these are the things, this excitement that takes place. And in Romans chapter 1, we actually kind of see that happening where the Apostle Paul writes this, this passage. And it's, it's, again, I read it last night. I read the end last night. Now we're going to read the beginning today. So in the end, he kind of says, because of this, I am, I am compelled, I am thrust into this world. My heart is for those that have never heard the message of Jesus Christ to proclaim that message. He, he, begin, he ends with that, but he starts with this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that he's writing to believers here, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well. But I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to all of you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greeks. I think there's three things that I I really like to start with here because it begins to say, where does he get this concept from? And he he talks about three components. One is this obligation. You can look at him as three I am's, and Jesus oftentimes refers to him as I am, but here's three I am's that he uses. I am obligated to this task. I'm a debtor. I'm I'm determined to do this task because I'm, I'm... I need to do this task because of who I am, because of what Jesus Christ did for me, I have to do this. The second thing he says is I'm eager. I think there's a little bit of attitude that comes out of so much of what we're involved in in life. You know, when, when I'm asked to do something by my wife, uh, it's, it's far better done when I'm eager to do it than when I'm not so eager, right? And you're like, oh, man. So much of our life could be different if we have an attitude of this idea that when we actually understand and appreciate what God has done for us and the relationship we have with him, our attitude should be one that actually should be hungry to serve him, hungry to be involved with what he's doing. And then he finally says, I'm not ashamed. And, and I think there's a good aspect here. I'm not ashamed of it. There's, a, there's an aspect of this fear that comes in that's in our lives that we are, the, the word ashamed is something we don't even really use very often. It's, it almost goes down to I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. Um, I actually know that this is real. And because of that, I'm passionate about it because of that I want to follow Lord Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul actually has a, a picture to look back on. He's got something that he sees from behind because he's looking back at what happened to the early church and how that formed. He's watching these guys that have gone on that had a relationship with Lord Jesus Christ. And he's actually describing not only his own life, he's describing the normal Christian life. This picture of like men and women, because of what Jesus has done for them, are transformed. Not because of their abilities, because they're not exactly the most brilliant guys who read the, the, the Gospels. You're not thinking these guys are like great scholars. But they actually change the world. And so God, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, uses these guys to change the world. You know, one of the things that, uh, we, for those of you that were here last night, you know that my wife and I served in Siberia, Russia. 
for a number of years. We were among, working amongst a people group called the Buryats. Uh, the Buryat people are a minority group. They're Tibetan Buddhist um, by belief system. They were cut off by language, by culture, and even by attitude from the rest of the, the, the country of Russia. Uh, we arrived uh, not long after the wall fell in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union wall fell, and, and we're there to see actually what God would do in a ministry through his power. Um, and one of the things that we saw was, you know, cold weather, obviously. Uh, we saw challenging situations. We saw not exactly the friendliest culture towards an American. Um, but what we actually really witnessed was God doing a miracle and giving us the privilege to watch it happen. You know, one of the things that I think happens in, in the area of missions is this idea and this is why I love this theme is being eager to do it. This idea is like, oh, I have to do this. You know, God's so many lost in the world, we have to go out and do this thing. Actually, it's not that at all. At least that's not the way I see Scripture. I see actually God actually saying, join with the big picture and actually get involved in the things that actually matter in the world. I mean, most of us, if we actually really were asked, we would want to do something that mattered. Um, we don't want to just do something that, you know, it'd be good, but nobody cares. You want to do something that matters. Here's God saying, hey, this is the whole point of the Bible. Join with us in this picture. And that's kind of where it begins for the Apostle Paul, what he's talking about. And that's where it begins for the church. And that's where it began for us, was we got to see God do a miracle in Siberia. And we were, as Julianne shared last night, we were on the front row seats watching it. Now, he did use us, but so many times, never in the way I thought he would use us. It was always God doing something uniquely, bringing people to our house, connecting us to people, and watching God do something. But as everything else we see... In Scripture, we see that this is the beginning, and this is what he uses, and he's going to use his church. So as my church sent me out in Siberia so long ago, God was going to see a church planted in that area. So often, though, as we understand this task and understand these, these challenges, um, it's difficult for us to understand, like, what actually is a church, and what did it look like before there was the church? So look at back in Acts chapter 2. It's a mere seven weeks after the culmination of all of humanity has taken place. Um, what happened on the cross with Jesus, and everything is about to change. And then Jesus kind of comes in and gives these, these last words. Now, these aren't, so oftentimes when you read these words or you hear a missionary's messages, you've probably heard of hundreds of them, um, you hear, read these words in Matthew 28 or Acts 1-8, and it sort of sounds like this is like, hey, I got a new idea. Let's now go out and reach all the world. Actually, it's been a continued story, right? We talked about that from, from Genesis all the way along. Jesus is just saying, remember what, what's been told you all these years? This is still the plan. It's still the main plan. He actually says this where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So as Jesus is a central theme for all humanity, Acts 1 verse 8 is a central theme by Jesus to his church. It's actually the challenge for us as a church. Like, what is our goal? Our goal is actually to be invested in our local community. Our goal is to be invested in, in Samaria and into the ends of the earth. The same picture, I know it's not exactly, you're actually talking to a real place there, but the same idea is for us, is that we're to be invested not just in one thing, we're to be invested in reaching the entire world, whether they're our neighbors or whether they're across the sea. That should be the heart of the church, and that's the challenge of the church. And Jesus, actually at the end, when he's on the cross, he's dying on the cross, what's one of the last things he says? It is finished. He's actually saying something very clear. I have accomplished the work that I came to do. But the task of reaching this world for the gospel of Jesus Christ, when there are 7,000 still people groups without the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not finished. And he said, now I give that responsibility to you, the church. 
And in this passage, we actually see three things, main things coming out. One of them is a transformation by the gospel. Second one, we're going to see the gathering of the church. And then we're going to see what happens when this church scatters. We're going to see it continue on throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, if you turn your Bibles there, and we'll read from verse 5. Now, what's happened before this? There's been the gathering disciples in this room. They're waiting. The angels have said, hey, go and wait for the Comforter, for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And then they go up in this room, and they're gathering there. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin a loud noise, a rushing wind, and they begin to speak in other languages. And it starts with this. Now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, from both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And here's what he hears. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed. Now, I want to stop right there. Just think about that. Like, why, why is Jesus actually, or why, why, is, why, is, why am I taking time to read these words that, from, from this book of what and who were all there? Why take time to read all the languages that were present? Part of that is this. Maybe you've never heard, or maybe we've never heard, of any of these languages or any of these people before. But just because we've never heard of them doesn't mean they don't exist. And just because we've never heard of them doesn't mean they don't matter to God. And so this is a picture right now of an entire language region being hit with this gospel message in their own languages, in their own languages. Now, these are all Jews, but what's actually happening here is something actually very, very, I guess, apropos of what Jesus is describing when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The tongues here that we're seeing here are known languages, and in this situation, there are a variety of different languages, but they're representing many, many nations. Then Peter says this in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he goes on to say, and Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that in verse 21. Now, this, this is the one thing I want to talk about first. This gospel message, this first proclamation of the gospel, it's the first one given by any of the disciples. So it's the first proclamation taken place by the disciples. It's actually the first real recorded sermon that we see with the church in the book of Acts. So what do we need to understand a little bit from this? first, from the sermon. It's actually a focus on a couple of things. One of them is that Peter tries to figure out what's happening here, and he actually quotes a prophecy in Joel which talks about this, the Holy Spirit pouring himself out, and then all nations being blessed. So Peter kind of tries to figure this out. He didn't plan it. It wasn't part of his sermon notes. He was just trying to say, because I understand scripture, I've started to get what this is about. Why are we speaking in all these languages? The other part is this. These languages which are the Gentile nations. They, weren't, they were Jews in the area, but this was a Gentile language that's being spoken of, and God actually is revealing his clear message to people in a language they understand. And then Peter, with absolute clarity, marvelous clarity, and, and urgency, begins to link what everyone now is actually understanding in Jerusalem, that there's a clear, powerful proclamation of the gospel taking place in their own tongues. Now, the gospel of God is specifically meant to communicate to man. God has always communicated with man in a language and a culture that we can understand. That's why we have the scriptures. We saw it written to us in a language and a culture we could understand. Now, why is this important? 
because it's the image of the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. I shared last night that we kind of fell into a ministry that ended up booming in Siberia was we didn't realize we went to Siberia. First off, we didn't know it was closed, a closed country, or closed region, specifically uh, a secret city, so a closed off city. The second thing we didn't know was that there were 70,000 deaf people living in the Republic. I hadn't, I hadn't met a deaf person in my life, but under the Soviet Union, sort of like this attitude of any kind of a, a handicap or any kind of disability, it was something that they didn't want to see, so they would send it off to different parts of Siberia. And our region, there was three regions that got deaf people, and we were one of the regions that received deaf. So we had a massive amount of schools and massive amount of deaf people that had been sent out there. They'd been sent away by their, by their parents when they were two years old, never to see their parents again. Um, basically, this was going to be the place where they would live their lives, and so they would make new friends and families out there. And this church began to grow and, uh, and to move along, and there was a school with about 2,000 to 2,500 children in it, that was in this town of, they would educate, sort of educate the children. And it was a deaf school. And so I was asked by a student, who, well, a graduate of the school, would I go there and teach at this school and talk to the students? And we were doing a project for them. I was going to offer them an opportunity to be involved with us in some way. And so I said, I would. And so I went to the school and it was actually run, it was, we were a Tibetan Buddhist area, so it was run by a Tibetan Buddhist uh, monks were running it, but there was also non-Tibetan Buddhist teachers at the school. And so uh, I went there and I spoke to the school, and they allowed me to come and speak, and they did an assembly. Now, I'll have to tell you one thing that's really true about the deaf in Siberia is, in Russia, they, they, they despise them. They're considered to be the lowest of the low. And so they didn't care about them. They didn't care for them very much. Up until 1993, a year before we got there, it was illegal to sign in the country. It was only legal in 1994. The reason why it was illegal to sign was because of the fear of insurrection and taking over the country, which is one of the things that have happened throughout centuries. Deaf people have always taken over nations. And so we were, they were very fearful of that. So they said, <laughs> do not speak in that language. And so out of that, they said, no, no. So, so I go to this group, and, and the, the teacher kept calling them dumb, very dumb children, not able to learn. They're, not, they're, not, they're, they're silly. And, but I knew them. I already had a relationship with them. They're some of the brightest guys I know. And so I was standing there, and the teacher walked in, and she starts to make an announcement about me being there. And they were sort of making, the teachers were making fun of me, because they said, these guys won't understand you. And so she takes out a megaphone, which if you're anything about deaf people, it's covering your mouth, and she has a microphone on the end, and she begins to yell in it. Now, if they weren't deaf when they went to this school, after that announcement, they were going to be deaf, because she was screaming the same. I'm like, wow. And, uh, and I get to the front of the class, and she was right, it was chaos. Nobody was looking at me. Nobody cared that I was an American. I was up there. Nobody cared anything about me. I'm standing there thinking, how do I, you know, I don't even know what to do. And the teachers are kind of all smiling back there thinking, you know, you do it. I didn't have, an, I didn't have a microphone. I said, I didn't need a microphone. And, uh, and so I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to do this? And so I thought, I saw these four girls in the front row. And I thought, I'm just going to speak to them. So I just stepped down off the stage and walked up to them and just started talking to them. And at first they weren't even looking at me. And suddenly they looked at me. And I was talking to them, and they just, I was, I was shocked, because they went, just tears started coming out of their eyes. Why? Minutes later, this whole room is silent, and everybody's looking at me, and I'm like, now going, oh, okay. So I climb back up on the stage again, I start to speak. And it was dead silent. And all throughout the room, there were people crying. I wasn't telling a sad story. You know what it was? I was the first hearing person ever they could speak their language and communicate them in a way that they understood. And it blew them away. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's why God communicates to us in a language and a culture that we understand. And that's why it's so important in the idea and the concept of missions that you have to learn language. You have to learn culture. You have to engage at people so that they can understand the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It impacts people. It changes people. It transforms. So it's so important in missions to speak clearly in that culture and language. And the second thing that we see in this text that we see happening right here is the gospel proclamation. You know, one of the things that often happens even when you're, if you're young people or if you're at work or whatever, we're always waiting for that perfect moment. To, when, when they ask me the right question, I'll share the gospel. And I've, I've become more and more convinced that there is no such thing as a perfect moment. It doesn't exist. There's a, there's a story out there that has, that's been quoted in the past. Uh, France, St. Francis Assisi, he preached the gospel at all times, used words if necessary. And the reality is he never said that. He never said, preach the gospel at all times, use words as necessary. Actually, what we see here in the book of Acts, and we see all throughout Scripture, is this challenge and this, this compelling statement to the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel with our, with our voices, with our mouths. Of course, live a life that's holy and honorable before the Lord. But not just that. It's actually share our faith. Communicate truth. Because unless it's actually communicated in a way people can understand, it doesn't penetrate. Take time to get to know them. It says this in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news of peace. Gospel proclamation is essential. And then you have this other aspect. There's some kind of issue of urgency taking place. Do you remember when, the, when you heard the gospel for the very first time? And it transformed. I, do, I remember when I was older. I got saved older. And uh, my wife and I were just talking about this last night uh, a little bit. But I got saved when I was older. And I remember the different, my different mindset about what was important had completely changed. Had completely changed. Is the gospel transforming you? The issue here is this. It's transforming in such a way that the urgency happens wherever it is. He didn't wait for that perfect moment. This, this sermon is actually being done at a party at a huge party, and he's actually preaching it out loud at a party, and yet 3,000 people get changed. This gospel has been changing and transforming people all the way along. But are we different? Are we different because of that message? Is the message of the cross changing our perspective or not? It says this, now when they heard this, verse 37, their hearts were cut, to the, or hearts were cut and they said to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I continue to look to evaluate my own life. When I was 17 years old, I grew up in a missions family. I think I shared that last night. I grew up in a really strong missions family. I grew up in a strong believing family. I went to work with my uncle, who was a missionary pilot in Columbia, South America. And I was 17. I wanted to be Tarzan, and that's why I did it. And so I thought, this would be a great place to go to do that. And I went out there to this, to this jungle place, and, and he lived out on this, um, well, my uncle was in a, in a base, but what happened was there was another place where I was going to go to, and a missionary had been shot in the neck by an arrow. Um, and he didn't die, but he had to leave. And so they were looking for someone to go help this other missionary that was out there. And I was the only one that was like, I had no obligations to anything. So I was just, kind of, I was just there. And so um, I was there for three months, supposed to be there for three months, ended up staying there for a year. And finally, after a lot of pleading, they, they, they allowed me to go to, out there to work. And I got to work on this airstrip. Uh, for a year. And what we did basically every day was we chopped down trees and picked them up and um, built this airstrip. And the way that, what had happened, because the Indians had been somewhat violent, they lived in these houses in the middle of a lake. 
And so we lived on these houses out there in the middle of the lake. And um, one day I was diving into the water to swim to shore. And the water level raised up and down pretty high. And there was one of the trees <laughs> that we had thrown into the water uh, hit my foot. And it cut it pretty bad. But it wasn't a big deal until I got to shore. And then a couple of days later, it began to infect really bad. And we were seven days by canoe to the base. That's why they were trying to build an airstrip out there. So we had to paddle back seven days by canoe. And in the seven days, I got pretty sick. I got pretty uh, high fevers and things like that. And so they were afraid of gangrene. So as I was getting out of there, I went back to this village where these missionary families were, and they gave me an antibiotics, and I was fine. My foot's okay. But as I was sitting there talking, I, was, I met an Indian there who was a Guaybero Indian. And I spoke Spanish, but I also was, had been learning because I'd worked with a Guaybero for a while, so I was learning a little bit of their language. He didn't speak Spanish. And so I was, he asked me, what am I doing out there with this tribe called the Maku? I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I wasn't even a believer. I was just chopping wood. And I was like, I'm just chopping wood, building an airstrip. And he's like, uh, for what? And I'm like, to bring a plane out there. So why are the missionaries out there? Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know enough language, but not enough to say much. I'm like, they're there to tell them about God. And he said, why? I was like, because they, I don't know, nothing better to do, I guess. So that's what they're going to do. And he said, who's going to tell us about God? Who's going to tell the Goya better about God? You know, I sat back and looked at them thinking, not me. I don't, I don't even know. I, two, two years from now, I'll be back in America. I won't even remember who you are. How important is this guy to me? I just sat there looked at him and I said, I have no idea. You know, I walked away thinking, they're going to be me. I'm not going to go there. Has the gospel transformed you to the point where these things actually matter? It wasn't until I was 25 years old that those words came rushing back to me. And I suddenly felt like an idiot. Like, I didn't care for five years, or seven years almost. And then God suddenly gripped my heart and said, who are you? Who are you? Am I different than I was? I pray that I am. You know, after results of that, that, that issue took place, of the proclamation, 3,000 souls were added to the group. This is actually an exciting time for the church. And then something takes place here, which is something unique. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and the Lord added to the number of those that were being saved. There's something that I think is important to see here that I think that we're actually talking about. We're talking about what is a church, and what is important in this role that we are about of sending people out to see the church exist. You see, the goal isn't just to see people gathering together and getting saved. Um, because that's going to die off. There's not something to maintain it. When tr problems come, when trials come, there will be nothing left. It says here at the very beginning that this church actually spent time studying the Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like in Acts chapter 17, they searched the Scriptures with purpose, understanding who God was. So a Spirit-filled church is one that studies God's Word and understands God's words and actually listens to God's words. So obviously the application can go to this place. If there is no Bible in this in this place. If we're talking about a place like in India, which we saw there's no believers, there's no Bible likely in that language. Someone's got to go there and translate that Bible and take time to do it. Why? Because just going out there and doing a trip to see these guys come to faith in Christ, when problems come, it won't last. When we went to China my first time, I lived in China after Siberia. We went to China my first time. I was sort of in a situation where I'm trying to figure out, well, who's unreached and who's reached? China and Russia were very different, obviously, different countries, but not only that, but significantly different, different in, in uh, air territories. I lived in Siberia where, where there were 2.3 million Buryats in the area in a, in, a, in a territory the size of like, almost like North America. And so it's a huge, massive 
And now you go to China where it's like you're bumping into a person almost every five seconds. Not only that, you're bumping into people groups and languages. We moved to a province, moved to a province where 200 languages were spoken that weren't Chinese. 200 languages. We saw two churches that existed. Now, if you understand Chinese history at all, after World War II, um, prior to World War II, there was a Boxer Rebellion which killed a lot of missionaries. And then there was a sort of a, a neutral time. And then after World War II, Mao Zedong took over and he eliminated any kind of missionary effort taking place in this area. And they literally killed, literally killed thousands, even millions of people during those times. Actually, up to 50 million people, they say. And a lot of them are Christians. So you go to these areas and you start wandering around these areas. And we could see there were churches in this area and people group and churches in this people group, but no other people group. Yet I know missionaries had been there. Because I read their journals. I've read stories about them having been there. And yet in the people groups, there's no believers. Why? One thing we saw that was very clear was where there was a Bible, there was a church. Where there was no Bible, there was no church. It's kind of like a simple way to say it. Where where they they had effectively eliminated the Bible in that people group, that church ceased to exist. And I think it hits us in a very real way. When we actually, as believers or as a church, begin to neglect the teaching of God's word, we're going to spiritually die. We're going to spiritually be at least illiterate, right? We're not going to care. We're not going to be touched by the Word of God. How can a world exist? How can a church exist where there is no access to the Word of God? It it really can't. And we sometimes get spoiled. I have my phone. It's right over there. My phone is over there, and I have the Bible in so many different versions and my my, my Bible. I don't think I sit there, and I can tell you this. I honestly, I, I can tell you truthfully, I do not ever think about all those that gave their lives so that we could have the Bible in our language. But you know, it wasn't in English originally. And someone actually gave his life to translate into our language. How much more should we be passing on that thing that was given to us, to others? The second thing we see here is Christian fellowship. Now, there was a discipleship taking place. There was this relationship taking place. The Apostle Paul describes this as this. For a church to exist, it has to have fellowship. There are places in this world where it's really hard to exist. In the places where we work, it's very hard for believers to fellowship together. Be frank about that. It's very challenging. So we're finding unique ways of doing those things. But the Apostle Paul describes this, and this is what's a key component to the church. We proclaim to you that we, what we've seen and we heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We actually have to have fellowship with one another, and that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So a spiritual church is one that is actually engaging with people. A very real way of looking at that, it's making disciples. That fellowship that's taking place is discipling one another encouraging one another. As a church, one of the things a church has to be doing is investing in its people and then propelling those guys out into this very, very challenging, terrible world. But to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the third part is a worshiping church. The third characteristic of this early church is a church that was worshiping. There was breaking of bread and prayer. The spirit-filled church that he's describing here is one that actually engages in a relationship. Remembering, remembering the relationship that Jesus Christ has for us, worshiping and reminding ourselves daily of these things. And then the fourth thing is it's a witnessing church. It says here that, that, that they were adding to their number daily those that were being saved. They were relating to the world in outreach, and they were engaging continuous evangelism. They weren't a self-centered, self-focused church at all. They were a church that looked for opportunities to send itself to and did that. We actually see that taking place for the entire passage now going on after that. This eagerness to continue to push on beyond its borders, beyond its own levels of the church, is what begins to happen in Acts. When, when I went to China, one of the things I said was I was in China. We worked with a, uh, we have a, a, a pretty large team of doctors on our team. They went to do a hospital. Hospital was taken away. 
uh, by the Chinese government, but they have all stayed. They still practice medicine. One's a, uh, one does almost 250 facial reconstructive surgeries a year. Um, but he's also working involved in planting a church in, that, in those areas up, up there and, and very difficult places to be in. And as we're out there, um, one of the things that happened was there was a virus that took place. Viruses happen all the time. And, and if, <laughs> almost every pandemic that you hear about in America started somewhere in China. Usually started right in Yunnan, where we were living. So it was like right in this one area. So they start from there and they boom out of there. And there was one that hit that area so badly that people were dying all over this part of China. But there was actually a cure for it. And we, our team, because we had doctors on our team, were given that medicine to cure this disease. And we were giving that medicine out. But we heard about a place in a high mountain area. And so we wanted to go there and help those guys out too. I mean, they need it. They need the medicine. And so we started putting backpacks on our backs and started going out there and this is up in the Himalaya areas, high altitude, and uh, going up to almost 16,000 feet. And if you ever climbed anything at all uh, over 10,000 feet, you know that something happens to you emotionally at about 10,000 feet, and 16,000 feet, you're just, just wiped. And we're trying to get up this mountain and go over this mountain. I'm like, wow. And all of a sudden, we're climbing up this mountain, but we know people are dying up there. And we desire to go up there. And also, we see these gazelles jump, like, running down the mountain. They're old men. These guys are gazelles. are actually like guys in their 80s and 70s. And they look like deer. They're jumping over rocks and coming all the way down. And they're grabbing these backpacks off our backs. And they're all smiling. They got these backpacks on their backs. And they're just running up this hill again. I'm going, oh, man. You know, and so they were flying up the hills. By the time we got up the hill, uh, our doctors began to distribute the medicine. And I have, we have a picture of these guys sitting in a circle, these old guys sitting in a circle, and they all are showing the bottom of their feet. They weren't wearing shoes. Showing the bottom of their feet, and their, their feet are gashed, bloody. They all have smiles on their faces. Why? Because those are their families. They were bringing medicine to their children, to their families. Do you know how important it was to them? Do you know how eager they were for us to come? They were praying, not even to Jesus, they were praying that somebody would come up and remember them up in these high mountains. And somebody did. And so they ran down with an eagerness. The picture we see from the Apostle Paul all the way to this picture in the book of Acts is a heart of eagerness to serve. Not this, not this guilt, but this compulsion because of the love of Jesus Christ in me. I want to do this thing. I want to do this thing that I can't imagine ever being done. The attitude we have as believers towards the Great Commission should change our hearts, should change our life. So the Chapter 2 of the book of Acts is not the end of the story of this first church. It's actually the beginning, the foundational perspective of how we actually look at life. And the impact is all around us that we see here today. The fruit of the labor of what's gone on. But now there's something I think we need to look at here. This church now is actually 2,000 years older, right? The church that we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2, is 2,000 years older. How does she look? How does the church look now? What's her impact on the world? How far has she gone and, and, and what is left to go? Are we living lives, am I living my life, similar to what I see from Romans chapter 1, where I'm eager, I'm obligated, and I'm compelled to go? Or am I actually living my life where it's just like, yeah, I, I just want to do my, do my stuff. Are we excited to finish this task? The, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget a time when I was in this Laos, we, we were in Laos, and I was working, we were just beginning to work in Laos, and um, Laos, if you know, is like, it's listed as one of the top 10 most persecuted places in the world for Christians. It's very, I mean, they, they are being shot um, still. Even when we've, we've even been there, they were, they were killing uh, Christians there. 
And so we're in this area, and I, I was asked to go from Thailand to Laos to work with translators on the translation of the Bible. And so I was going to do that. So we went in there to, to get in there to do this thing. And um, we were praying about it and seeing if this would be an opportunity. And we started to head towards this area. And they said, meet us at this, at this there's, a, there's, there's a place to go. So when you come into the country, we can't meet you straight up at the hotels. You have to go into this area. Up, up, there's, a, there's a dam you can go to. When you go up there, we'll meet you there. It's a tourist area. And we're thinking, okay, so we'll go up there. And they're going to send guys on motorcycles. We're going to hop on the bikes with the motorcycles. They're going to give us a phrase, which is basically, Are you looking, would you like to see our village? And we're going to say, yes, we'd love to see your village. And they're going to, then we're going to hop on their motorcycles. They're going to take us off. So we got in this thing, a tuk-tuk, had the address, and it, got, and it took us two and a half hours by tuk-tuk to get up. We're in the middle of a jungle. And the, I get up, the guy says, it's here. And I'm like, I don't see any tourist thing. So he says, no, no, over the, over the hill. And so we climb up over the hill and got the other side of it, and I still see no tourist thing. I see a, a little field, and I don't even see water. And I'm like, I don't think there's actually a dam here. And so he said, and so we're walking around. And I say, oh, there's a little stream, and I see a little bamboo pole with a little tiny generator thing spinning on the side. I'm like, got to be kidding. And all of a sudden, motorcycles come up. They all pull up. They're all like 15 guys, and they look scary. And they're also staring at us with their motorcycles going. They don't say anything. And so I just like, I walk over to them and kind of like climb on the back of the bike, hop on, and we just drive off. And the guy next to me goes, how did you know these are the guys? I'm like, I don't know these are the guys. I don't, I don't know where we're going. So we get to this place, and we are in the right place. And here's these eight men from five different language groups, five language groups. And they're asking for help in translating the Bible. They've been in prison from 20 years to eight years, have just been released, haven't even been home to see their family yet. And they love their kids like you guys love your kids. They love their wives like you guys love your wives or your husbands. They love their families. But they came, they were put in prison because they wanted to translate the word of God. And actually, the first thing they wanted to do when they got out of prison was to see if someone would help them translate the word of God. And I'm sitting there looking at a guy, and he's got an arm, which is kind of like twisted up like this, twisted all the way back. It had been twisted back. And it was one of those things where I'm talking to the group, but you know when you can't help but like look at, up, you, keep, you feel like you keep on staring, you keep looking away at this disability. And this guy leans forward and says, I can do this. And what they had done is they told me they'd taken a bamboo pole and twisted his arm and rolled it back so he would never write again. And he's like, and he says, I'm learning with my other hand how to do I'm thinking, I have no concern that you don't have the ability, pal. I hope I have the ability to give you the right words so that you can do this task. So I was like, I'm not worried about you, I'm worried about me and giving you the wisdom. And after I was getting ready to leave, they actually prayed for me. They prayed that I would endure in persecution. They didn't pray for the persecution in the shop. They didn't pray for problems that happened. They said, I would endure during persecution. You know what? I've never been persecuted like that. I don't even understand what that feels like. But I can tell you this. It's an amazing thing to watch men that have given everything for the gospel of Jesus Christ and think that they haven't even accomplished a thing yet. They're still in the march. They're still in the march. It's an interesting passage. James Stewart writes this. The concern for world evangelism is not something tacked onto a man's personal Christianity, which he may take or leave as he chooses. It is rooted in the character of the God who has come to us in Christ Jesus. Thus, it can never be the province of a few enthusiasts, a sideline or speciality of those who happen to have a bent that way. It's a distinctive mark of being a Christian. So Jesus' words on the cross, to his disciples, he's actually saying, when he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. And then right after that, when he's risen again, he says, now it's our turn as a church to engage. Now it's our church to be involved in this thing, to be involved in this unfinished task. We did a conference not long ago, and, there was, and this wall up, up that they had, there were 17 or 7,000 languages on this wall. 
that was in this area. And as we, as we sat there, these are the languages where their gospel has never yet been. Went to the museum in, in Washington, D.C., and they have these, in the Museum of Washington, D.C., the Bible museum, they have these Bibles up on a wall, all over the wall. And then on this wall they have, it's basically Bibles that have been written, and there's a bunch of Bibles that are empty, still to be written. The gospel, this task, it's not been done. It's not been done at all. One of the things that we have as believers is we have to be willing to have the courage to keep sending and to keep investing until this task is done. One of the things I saw from the Apostle Paul was Paul never really saw the end of his ministry. Paul never really understood the fact that we here today are, are, are byproducts of his going to the Gentiles. That's, that's part of the picture. That's a fruit of the ministry that, that you don't really get to see. So you as a church, we as a church, we, we get to see a lot of the fruit that we're involved in, but we don't get to see all the fruit that we're involved in. We, we had been working in Siberia. One of the first believers that came to Christ in Siberia married an American missionary and ended up working in another part of Siberia. They're from our church, and so she moved to another part of our church, and she moved to another part. And she uh, was working at a church plant there, and then they moved to Shadron, Nebraska. And now he's a pastor in Shadron, Nebraska, and they asked me to speak in Shadron, Nebraska. I'd never been to Shadron, Nebraska. I don't know if you've ever heard of Shadron, Nebraska. Um, he said, well, just, they said, just land in the airport in Denver and drive five hours north. Like, is there a road that you No, just, there's only one road. It only goes north. There's just one road. And so we drove up there. It was at nighttime. Was, we were driving that way, and no cars are coming the other way. I'm like, what happens in Shadron? So we get to Shadron, and we, we spent the night there. And the next morning, we had breakfast. And I was having breakfast with this, with this lady that we had led to the Lord in Siberia. We have been a part of her ministry, discipling her all her years, and her husband. And so we're sitting there having breakfast, and she invited, they invited their church family over. And so we're sitting there, and a lady who I've never met before slides in next to me on my bench, which I have space issues anyway, so I'm like, okay, and I'm eating. And so she slides in next to me, and she said, I'm the fruit of your ministry. And I, I thought that was like a greeting of Shadron. I thought, well, I'm not sure, what, do I say, I, I'm the fruit of your ministry, or <laughs> do you want fruit, or what is this? So I just said nothing. I turned my head, started eating my cereal this way, and slid down here. And, and she slid next to me again, and she said, I'm the fruit of your ministry. And I said, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I don't know what that means. What it means is she said, Good, I'm glad you said that. I want to tell you. And she said, I came here as a non-believer to Shadron. I didn't know God. I didn't have anything to know about God. And she said, and I met this lady, Maya, this Buryat from Siberia, and she led me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, she says, your name is from our country. How do you even know this stuff? She goes, a long time ago, a missionary came and shared the gospel with me. And then she began to disciple her and walk with her. And she said, she started teaching a Bible study with her. And she goes, one day you're going to be teaching this Bible study. And she goes, I don't teach in front of people. She goes, I was teaching a Bible study. And she's like, how did you learn how to study? She goes, missionaries came and told us about it. And they told me how. And now I'm actually doing it. And she said, now I'm leading a Bible study of 25 women. She goes, I've been doing this for about two years. I've been, I've been discipling them, teaching them how to teach the Bible. She goes, I'm the fruit of your ministry. You know, when we went to Siberia, planted a church in Siberia, Russia, I had no idea. I had no idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ could somehow get all the way around to Shadron, Nebraska, which I'd never heard of before. But that's the power of the gospel. It's unstoppable. And we have this temptation to think that this enemy around us is so much stronger than us. He's not. We have this thing that we think politics is so horrible. You know, it might be, but the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ can penetrate that. We actually, all we can do is, is share the message of hope. But God actually does an amazing thing with this message. He'll send it, compel it around the world. We have to be eager and willing to be used by God to reach this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word, and thank you for the message and hope of the gospel. 
And thank you that we have the privilege of knowing you and the power of your resurrection. Father, help us to be eager and willing to be sent, to go, to share, to communicate the truth, Father, here in this community, Father, and all of the United States, Father, around the world and into the unreached places in the world that have never heard. God, give us that desire. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.